0: Um, so good to be back. Once you guys grab your Bibles and open them to Matthew 16, and we're gonna be in Matthew 16. We're also gonna be in Acts chapter one. Kids, fourth through ninth grade, are dismissed. Steve Roby will take you guys, uh, take you guys to class. There. Right. Well, man, it is such a blessing to be back. Um, I really missed you guys. I was watching the live stream, really sad that I wasn't with you guys. Um, But man, it's so incredible to see God speaking just through the two men that came to preach, Bob and Jeremy. Um, Those are just two guys that are um, honestly mentors to me and mean a lot in my life, and so it was fun to be able to share those guys. Jeremy, as he mentioned, who preached last week, is one of the elders. Here he's not on site, but he's one of the elders here at Philippi, and um, and then Bob attends here, Bob and his wife, and uh, it was just cool to to hear God speak through those guys. Uh, so yeah, good to be back. We're gonna talk this morning. We're gonna delay starting the book of Hebrews for about a week. Um, we will be in the book of Hebrews for something like ten months, um, but I wanted to spend the morning with you just chatting a little bit about our trip and kind of what we saw there, and rooting that in a couple of of passages. Um, Definitely had some major, I think some major impressions, some, some major clarity that came from that trip and I'm excited to share that uh, with you guys. But let's, let's pray first uh, before we dive in. Well, Father, we thank you so much, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the fact that you, Jesus, came into this world that you have made a way of salvation for us. God, we thank you that you are working in the nations, that your spirit is here, Lord, present and alive, working in us and working through us. And God, this morning as we gather and we open your word and and we examine it, Father, we just ask that you would speak, Lord. We ask that you would work, Father. God, we love you. We invite you, Lord, to teach us this morning. We invite you to work, Lord, in all of the lives of all of our kiddos this morning. We invite you to work in the, in the kids across the street, fourth through ninth graders, Lord, as they interact with the word as well. God, speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <laughs> amen. Well, as I said, today we're going to just take a minute and, uh, and pause and just think about this idea of God's sort of global kingdom agenda and uh the uh, you know kingdoms administrations, empires, federations, all of these things, kingdoms grow. They always seek to grow. They seek to grow in influence. They seek to grow uh, geographically. There's lots of different ways that kingdoms often tend to do that. Uh, The Roman Empire, if you remember, the Roman Empire would grow um, through military conquest. They would come in and they would take over another um, nation and they would absorb that nation into the empire. And they would tax them and they would recruit them into their military and that's how they would grow. Different countries have grown different ways. Um, In Israel in 1948, Israel grew largely by setting up colonies or setting up, um, uh, not so much colonies, but settlements in different areas. Um, Right now, the way that nations are growing uh, in this day and age isn't so much geographically or militarily primarily as it is influence. It's through technology. It's through um, having the biggest social media platform, a.k.a. TikTok, that you created. Thank you, China. Um, They're taking over the world one TikToker at a time, right? So this is largely how uh, empires grow today. Interesting, by the way, I don't know if you've been following the... the, um, China is, is probably at some point going to try to invade Taiwan uh, because they think Taiwan is sort of their, part of their country, sort of like Russia did with Ukraine. And Taiwan is like the third largest chip manufacturer, microchip manufacturer in the world. And people are kind of wondering like, what is China hoping to gain by this and what's gonna happen? Interesting things to watch, right? But all that aside, we need to ask the question, what is the way that God's kingdom grows? Make no mistake, God's kingdom is designed to grow. It's designed to grow and to move and to become larger. How does God's kingdom grow? You know, Jesus, his primary teaching theme was the kingdom of God. Did you know that? The main thing that Jesus talked about in the New Testament in his teachings was the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 13, we get eight parables in a row, every single one of them meant to describe and clarify what the kingdom of God is. 100 and, let's see, uh, how many times I have it written? Now, 162 times in the New Testament, the word kingdom is used. So when Jesus was trying to disciple his disciples, he wanted them to picture what God was doing in the world through this idea of kingdom. It was very important. So before we dive into this passage, I wanna take a minute and think with you about what kingdom means. What did Jesus mean when he said Kingdom. First of all, kingdom was not an ideology. It was not uh, uh, sort of an idea. When Jesus talked about kingdom, he wasn't talking about something like socialism or communism, like a a theory or an idea that could sort of take over. When Jesus talked about the kingdom, he was talking about a, a reality. He was talking about something that already exists and even exists outside this world that he said was going to come and going to break into this world. Kingdom does not just mean the church, but the church is part of the kingdom. God's kingdom is bigger than just the church. Let me put it this way. God's kingdom is God's rule. Whenever God is ruling over something, that is his kingdom, wherever he is reigning. Probably the best way I've heard the kingdom explained is this way. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place doing God's purpose. God's kingdom is God's people and God's place doing God's purposes. So think about the first kingdom expression that God made. That is Adam. God made a people. It's called humanity. He put the people in a place, the garden, and he gave them a purpose. Make babies and fill the earth, right? Cultivate the world. That was the cultural mandate, the purpose. So God, in a way, made a kingdom expression through Adam. But of course, it failed, it shattered, it broke the world open. Then God did it again. He did it through uh, another kingdom expression and that was the kingdom of Israel. God chose a people, Abraham, and then he put those people in a place, the promised land, and then he gave them a purpose. And the purpose was to be the nation ruled by God and to be a light to the, to the Gentiles. Of course, they failed at this. So when Jesus comes and he's preaching about the kingdom and he's saying that the kingdom is both here and it's coming, that it's breaking. in, what is he saying? He's saying that God has once again started a people, a group of people, and that God is going to put them in a place and that God has given them a purpose. So what is the people? Well, Jesus becomes the firstborn of an entirely new people. If you are in him, if you're born again, you are part of a new ethnic reality, a new new people group called Christians. You've been born again into that. Well, where's our place? Well, our place isn't come yet. We're pilgrims. We're waiting for Jesus to come and to settle our place, right? But what we do have, guys, is we have a purpose. And that purpose is to expand the borders of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus commissioned us to do. One thing we know for sure about the kingdom is that it was designed to grow and to expand. Remember the the parables Jesus gave to explain to us the kingdom? He said the kingdom is like leaven, meaning it's invisible and small at first, but it doesn't stay that way. It grows and and it ends up overtaking really the whole lump. He said the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's this small thing that doesn't stay small, It grows and becomes a large plant. Do you remember this? The kingdom was designed to grow. It was designed to expand. The question is, how? How does God's kingdom expand? This is what we're gonna talk about uh, a little bit this morning. So this trip that we just went on, myself and my wife and and Pastor Ryan and his wife, Bree and little Violet, who's two years old and was so cute, um, everybody everywhere was just like smiling because Violet was there and she was just the this, this star of the, the whole trip. Anyways, uh, we, we, we spent 16 days primarily in Albania and then we also went to Slovakia and we visited a few other countries as well and we saw lots of different ministries. And when I got home, um, sorry, I'm really trying to tune out noise in the background. So I'm having a hard time. Um, when we got home, uh, I sat down San Francisco at four in the morning because I couldn't sleep anymore. And I said, Lord, could you help me just sort of summarize everything we've experienced, everything we saw and, and get it synthesized down into a couple points so I can, can bring that home. And, 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 and I did, I felt like God had two things that were clearly given that, that we need to think about this morning and that we need to think about moving forward as a church family. And that's the two things I wanna talk about this morning. The first one we're gonna find in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, so why don't you meet me there? Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, this is uh, part way through Jesus' discipleship program that he created, this three year discipleship program for his 12 guys. And Jesus is going to sort of bring a pop quiz with his disciples to see how much they're learning about him and about his kingdom and about what it means to be part of Jesus and his program. So verse 13, it says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi is an interesting place. You can visit it when you go to Israel. Uh, It's not to be confused with either Caesarea or Philippi. Those are different places. Caesarea Philippi was an area in northern Israel, and it was famous for being next to what they called the gates of hell. There was a massive, um, like a cave there with a temple made to pan on top of it, and they believed that it was the portal to the underworld. The Greeks did, at least. So they built this massive temple there and this is the place where Jesus wants to have a conversation a dialogue with his uh, with his guys. So he asks them this question. Hey guys, what is everybody saying about me? he says. What's the word on the street? What is what does everyone think or who does everyone think that I am is what Jesus is essentially asking his disciples to tell. Him. And that's always an easier question to ask, right? Hey, what's the word on the street about about Jesus? So here's what they say, verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they, they ramble off a list of, of the, the sort of the number one, two, three, and four answers of what people think Jesus, who Jesus is. The first being John the Baptist. Herod was paranoid. He took John the Baptist's life, if you remember, because John the Baptist spoke out about his um, illicit relationship with his brother's wife. So uh, uh, Herod was paranoid that John the Baptist was maybe back reincarnated or something or back from the dead and that Jesus was really John the Baptist. So apparently that rumor was going around. Some people thought Jesus was Elijah because Elijah was supposed to come before the eschaton, before the end of all things. Some people think maybe he's Jeremiah. Others think maybe he's just some kind of a prophet. The Jews thought that at least seven different prophets maybe would come before the end, before the kingdom would come. What's interesting is that nobody is thinking correctly about who Jesus is. Everybody has it wrong. Everybody is misunderstanding who Jesus actually is. Verse uh, verse 16, Jesus makes the question more specific. He said to them, pardon me, verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Boy, it's a whole lot easier, isn't it, to talk about what other people think about Jesus? or what other people think about something than it is to say what you actually think, isn't it? It's like politics. It's way easier to say, well, here's the two parties and here's what they don't agree on and here's what these people say and here's what these people say. But when you actually have to give an answer for yourself, it becomes a little more tense. And so Jesus doesn't just wanna know what everybody else in the crowd is saying. He wants to know, well, what do you guys think? Who do you think that I am? And so he makes it very specific. And just by the way, side note, Jesus asks this question of everyone. There is no escaping this question. At some point, you must answer the question, who is Jesus? What will you do with God's son? That's something you have to answer. And you say, no, I don't. Well, if you don't answer it with your mouth, you answer it with your life. If you don't answer it with your mouth, then you answer it with your silence we all have to at some point answer the question, who is Jesus and what will I do with God's son? So what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing a pop quiz to his guys. He wants to figure out how much have they learned? Are they putting the pieces together? (laughs) We'll see about that, we'll see about that. (laughs) So Peter replies, because Peter was kind of the spokesman right, for his crew, Peter responds, you are Christ, the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter answers for the group, and he actually says exactly the right answer. Now, this is a high Christology for a blue-collar fisherman. Okay, Peter didn't figure this out on his own. He didn't put this together, and Jesus is going to make that clear. Not only does does Peter nail that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, Christ just means Messiah, Messiah. He also nails that Jesus is deity, that he is the son of God, that he is the favored one of God. Somehow Peter manages uh, in his sort of bonehead, uh, big mouth kind of personality, he manages to just nail the quiz. And Jesus isn't going to let him get away with it. He says in verse 17, oh, Simon, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you didn't figure that out on your own. No offense, buddy, but you know, you're not the brightest tool you know, in the shed. Okay? That's not something you put together. Like Peter wasn't just sitting there reading the Old Testament and goes, Oh, I think I got it all figured out. The Spirit had been revealing this to Peter, and then he spoke up and confesses this reality. Not only does Peter not put this together, he doesn't even have a category to understand what he just said. Like He doesn't even have a clue what he means when he said that. You remember these guys didn't have a Trinitarian theology yet? They didn't really understand that the Messiah was gonna be the Son of God? So Peter doesn't even really get what he's saying, but it doesn't matter, he still says it. He confesses the truth here, and listen to what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is an astounding statement on part on the part of Jesus towards Peter. Now a lot of people debate about this verse and one thing they debate about is what does Jesus mean when he says that Peter will be the rock? Our Catholic friends, they they take this verse to mean that we need a Pope. That we need to have someone that is in this, this um, role of being the bedrock, the foundation of the church. But they misunderstand the point of what Jesus is saying in the text. What is Jesus saying here? He's not saying that Peter will be the rock, God forbid. He's saying that the thing Peter just said is the rock. The confession that Peter just made, which is what? That Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. He is the promised one, the anointed one, the centerpiece of all of human history, the centerpiece of all of God's redemptive work. Peter confesses it. He speaks it. And Jesus says, ah, I can build my church on that. That's... Speaking is what he's building his church. It's not a man, it's not a pope, it's not a mega church pastor, it's not a mega star, it's not anyone with big floating robes, okay? It's not the pope, it's the confession. Are you with me? Any hardcore Catholics in here, you're like, I'm leaving, okay. Have fun with the pope. Tell me how that goes for you. I'll take Jesus, thank you. Um, He is the, you know, by the way, this is a side note. There's only one time in the Bible that the word lead pastor is used. You know who it's talking about? Jesus, the arch-poemon, arch, poemen, arch poemen. He is the lead shepherd of his church, not the pope. Jesus is the leader of his church. And Jesus is saying, I'm gonna build my church on the proclamation of the gospel, the apostles' doctrine. Notice what else Jesus says. He uses a word that we don't see often in his mouth, and that is the word church. You see it? He says, I'm gonna build my, not kingdom, he says, I'm gonna build my church. Ekklesia is the Greek word. Ecclesia is the word used by the early church to describe the gathering, the congregation of the saints, the set-apart gathering of believers. Jesus is giving a future preview into what he's gonna do, and he says, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take the thing you just said, Peter, and I'm gonna use that as a foundation to build a people, because that's what the kingdom of God is. It's God's people in God's place doing God's purpose. Now, here's what I want you to see The church will not die. Do you see this this sentence here? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now remember, where is Jesus having this conversation with his boys? In Caesarea Philippi. The backdrop is literally what the ancients believed to be the gates of hell. And Jesus is saying, probably pointing to it when he says this, he's saying, death will not stop the church. Death couldn't stop the Messiah. He rose from the grave. Death will not stop the church. Nothing can stop the forward movement of Christianity as it accelerates around the globe and transforms people's lives. Jesus is saying this. He's saying he will use the spirit-revealed confession of the gospel to form a people, and nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it gets more cool here. Look at verse 19. Then Jesus says, I will give you, Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine if Jesus told you that? I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Jesus is saying is he's saying that you are going, if you, if you can hold on to this reality, Peter, you guys, is it dark back there? There's a light right next to you. you. can turn that light on and you'll be able to see. Boom, lights. <laughs> can you tell we don't have things figured out at this church? Like, <laughs> we're just working it out. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm like asking people to turn lights on everywhere. It's great. Okay. You guys were just really, it was really dark back. Anyone should fall asleep. Anyways. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, as, as part of the church and as one who speaks the truth, you have the ability to affect and impact eternal realities. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that, now, this isn't something specific to Peter. This is something specific to anyone who gets this confession right, who Jesus is. It means that what we do has eternal implications when we are doing gospel ministry, when we are speaking gospel truth. All of us. Then verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why? Because it was not time yet to give the euangelion, the good news of the kingdom of God. It wasn't quite time. Jesus is just previewing what's going to happen here. So here's the first thing that when I came home from this trip and I sat in San Francisco in the motel and I said, what were the big things that God showed us on this trip? Here's the first one. Jesus is building his church in all the world and nothing will stop it. It's the craziest thing to get on an airplane and fly halfway across the world and you find Christians there praying and worshiping Jesus and reading this book in their language and discipling people and watching people be set free and and seeing lives transformed just like we do here God said he was gonna build his church. Jesus said, I'm gonna build a church. I'm gonna build a people. And what do you know? He did it. One of the most powerful moments in the trip for me was we, we had a little bit of a day to go play tourist in between. We, we said, let's, let's stop on our way and let's just take a day and go to Rome. So we took a day and we went to Rome and we were seeing these different sites. We got to see where Paul was in prison when he wrote 2 Timothy. Um, we got to see this, lots of big churches and lots of architecture from the Roman Empire. Roman Empire was incredible. And Rome is a pretty important piece of history, right, in the world. So, but then we got to go see the Colosseum. And as we looked at the Colosseum, of course, we were impressed by just this massive structure that was created, you know, thousands of years ago. And there's part of you that's sort of conflicted. Part of you wants to be impressed by the architecture and the Roman Empire. But then as a Christian, you also recognize that in this place, thousands and thousands of Christians were martyred, eaten alive by animals, and killed for the entertainment of the Roman mob. So as you're in this place, you're kind of conflicted because you're thinking, man, like this is crazy, but this is a place of death. How many Christians lost their life here? But as it was pointed out to me uh, before, it was astounding to see that even though the Colosseum itself was in ruins, in the middle of the Colosseum was something that was not in ruins. You know what it was? A cross. Christianity outlived the Roman Empire. Isn't that incredible? You see what Jesus is telling these guys here? He's saying, I will build my church. Nothing can stop it. Death will not stop it. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm supposed to get up here after a mission trip and I'm supposed to say, guys, we got stuff to do. Let's go do it. I'll, I'll get there. Before I get there, I need to remind you that yeah, there's stuff to do, but I need to remind you that Jesus is already doing stuff and that Jesus is going to do stuff whether we get up out of our chairs and do things or not because it's his show. He's building his church and he's building it on the confession of the gospel by the power of the spirit. And it's not a matter of what are we gonna do? It's a matter of let's stop and just take a moment and reflect on what God has already done. He's already done so much. It was so crazy to, to come into this country, Albania, that was 30 years ago, it was behind the Iron Curtain. People weren't allowed, missionaries weren't allowed to go into there. It was a Soviet country. You go Everywhere you go in the country, there's bunkers because they were literally expecting nuclear fallout, right? This country, up until, again, 30 years ago, the gospel was not allowed in there. Albania was the first state to declare atheism as its primary religion. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? But yet you, you, you land there, and what do you see? You see that, that, that nothing could stop the gospel from coming into that country. Do you think it was just a, a political reality that burst open the doors of Albania that broke the Soviet Union so that the gospel could march into some of these countries? Or do you think it was Jesus building his church? It was Jesus building his church. Nothing can stop the forward movement of the gospel. I'm going to fast forward a little bit in the story to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Here's what we see at the end of all things. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What do we see when we see the end of all things, when we see God gathering his bride, his church? We see people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. God is working and building his church throughout the nations and the death gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can see the end of the story. Isn't that incredible? So I wanna start there because... I don't want us to do anything without first acknowledging that God is sovereign and that God is already doing the work. The question is not, what do we want to do and will God bless it? The question is, what is God doing and how can we join him? God is building his church. So that's the first thing I want us to see. The second thing I want us to see, we're gonna find in Acts chapter one. So why don't you flip over to Acts chapter one and uh, we'll just take a quick look here at this passage. Acts chapter one, starting in verse one. We, start, we studied the book of Acts when we started this church three years ago, if you are interested in going back and listening through that, but uh, just wanna revisit something here that I think is important. Acts chapter one, verse one. Dr. Luke starts his book this way. This is in the first book. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So if you remember, Acts is part two to Luke's two-volume series on the works of Jesus Christ. The first is the Gospel of Luke, and of course, the second is the book of Acts. I love that Luke considers the work of the church not as a different thing from the work of Jesus, but he sees it as the continuation of Jesus' physical ministry on the world. Because why? Because we're his body, Yes, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, but his work continues through the church. So uh, Luke doesn't see this as different from the gospels. He sees it as the continuation of Jesus' work. Verse 14, or pardon me, verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see how Jesus is here again concerned that these guys understand the kingdom of God. That is the thing he's trying to get them to see. Verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Jesus does not want his boys to begin their ministry without the equipping, without the power, without what they needed to do so. And so he says, hang tight in Jerusalem. And before you know it, there's gonna be um, this spiritual baptism in the Holy Spirit that's gonna equip you for the ministry. Now, if you remember, these guys were not from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee in the north and other places. They were visiting Jerusalem for the Passover feast in which Jesus was crucified. So Jesus dies, they sort of scatter, they don't know what to do, Jesus comes and interacts with them, reveals himself as being resurrected, and then he says, listen, I need you to stay here until you get the Holy Spirit. And once you get the Holy Spirit, then I have other things for you to do. Now, this might be a side note for you, but this doesn't mean that after we get saved, we need to go get baptized in the Holy Spirit. I disagree with that idea. These guys had not yet received regeneration. Jesus had died on the cross. He had not yet sent the Holy Spirit for anyone. So he distinguishes the difference between John the Baptist's baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's not something that happens when some guy slaps you on the forehead and then you speak in tongues and fall over. That's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is called salvation. It's regeneration. It's the fact that when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within inside of you. It's not some second thing. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit can fill us in particular ways for ministry, absolutely. But if you're saved for 20 years and then you go to some Pentecostal thing and they're like, you need a second baptism. You're like, what? I thought I was already saved. You are. The Spirit of God already lives within you. You don't need to get slapped on the forehead, okay? You have the Spirit already living within you, okay? Uh, So just know that. So that's what Jesus is saying. Now, verse six, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they saying here? They're, they're, they're beginning to develop their kingdom theology a little bit. And what they know is that the Old Testament talks about the end of all things, that, that God is going to set up his kingdom in Israel again, in Jerusalem. So they're saying to the resurrected Jesus, okay, is it time now? Are you going to do it? Is Israel going to be a superpower again? Are we going to emerge back into the scene of countries and, and be this sort of powerful entity? and Jesus is going to redirect their attention to what he really wants them to focus on. Now, notice he doesn't say they're wrong. He doesn't say no, I'm not going to establish the kingdom of Israel. He just directs them to something else, okay? For those of you that are into future eschatology and what God's going to do with Israel, think about that. I don't know, I'm just saying he doesn't say I'm not going to do that. He just doesn't say anything. He says this. He said to them, "It is not for you to know the times or seasons." that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, guys, don't worry about the timing. Don't worry about the timing. Isn't it funny how much Christians think about the timing, even though Jesus said not to think about the timing? Isn't that funny? It's just, that baffles me. Okay, verse eight, but you will receive power. We talked about that word before here. It's the word dunamis, okay? It's best translated dynamic, or dynamite—it's powerful. It's dynamic. You'll receive this dynamic power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and that happens when at Pentecost. Okay, at Pentecost—that's when that happens. Um, and you will be. Now, I want you to note this: you will be my what? Witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. That's where they are. That's where they're starting from. In Judea—that's the greater southern region of Israel. In Samaria, that's the greater northern region of Israel. And then where? The ends of the earth. So Jesus is giving them some very important instruction. First of all, he's saying you need the Holy Spirit. And then he's saying, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go be my witnesses. But where are we going to be witnesses? We're going to be witnesses everywhere. (laughs) Okay, everywhere. Jesus is saying the call is not exclusively local, But it's also not exclusively global. What is it? It's both. It's everywhere, okay? So if you've been lost until this point, come back to me, okay? You're like, what is he talking about? Okay, let me get clear, okay? Here's what we need to think about as a church. We need to be about Grant's past, amen? Our mission field is... Grants Pass, this is where we work, where we drive, where we get gas, where we get our coffee from our broista or our Chickista every morning, right? Um, th- this is what we do, right? This is where we live, this is our mission field, this is our Jerusalem. But is that where we stop? Is that the only place we think about ministry? No. We think about Judea, which for us is Southern Oregon. We think about Samaria, which is for us is Portland. <laughs> 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 Samaritans, Portland. Okay, that's funny. Um, and, and we think about the ends of the earth. What does this mean for us? It means that if we are being honest about what Jesus told the church to do, we must, guys, we must, we must be a church that is focused on local and global mission work. Amen? The whole world. We have to, not one, not the other, it's both. We have to be a church that's focused on both Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth. By the way, kind of funny, the Christians actually wouldn't have done this very well if it weren't for persecution. They all decided to stay together for the first matter of time. And then uh, this crazy thing happened where uh, Rome got tired of the Jews and he Basically, the diaspora, he scattered them all throughout the world, and, and they were forced by persecution to go into all the world and bring the gospel. Um, yes, Paul and missionaries were already doing that, but, but largely it would have just been a mega church in Jerusalem still. It would have been like Joel Osteen sized church in Jerusalem, and we would all have to fly there. And, 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 you know, but praise God, we don't, because the Holy Spirit actually is more interested in scattering us, right, than just getting us all in one place. So, our call is to the whole world. I love this quote by John Wesley. He said, I want the whole Christ for my savior. I want the whole Bible for my book. I want the whole church for my fellowship. And listen, I want the whole world for my mission field. Isn't that cool? We serve a God that has a global agenda for the kingdom of God. We serve a God that has started a kingdom that is designed to expand like leaven, like a mustard seed. And we get to tune into that program. We get to be part of of that program. Now, I want you to see a couple more things here. I want you to see that a believer notice this, a believer is a witness, and a believer is filled with the spirit. We have this false dichotomy in our head. We think, okay, I'm a Christian. And then a few years go by like, oh shoot, maybe I should figure out how to witness. Uh, are you a believer? You're a witness. You don't go witness. You don't learn to witness. You are a witness. You see, Jesus didn't say, go and witness. He said, go be a witness. He said, you will be my witnesses. That means that we have witnessed the reality of the resurrected Lord. And we don't need to go get the Holy Spirit. He's not in ready. He's not in Florida. The Holy Spirit is within the believer. You don't need to go get him. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives within you. If you're a believer, you are a witness. So what's left to do? Go. Do. Walk. Here's the other thing I want you to see, and I can't say this passionately enough. The power is connected to the witness. Do you see that? The power is for the witness, not so we can get goosebumps in dark rooms with million-dollar sound systems and good-looking bands that play the same song for 50 hours. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's fine. I just want you to understand this. The power of the Spirit of God is not to give you goosebumps. It's to send you on mission to save the lost. Jesus didn't say, I'm sending the Spirit so you can feel good. He said, I'm sending the Spirit so you can go reach the lost. So how do we get the Spirit of God to fill our church? How do we be a Spirit-filled church I want to be a spirit-filled church. I want to be a church where the Spirit of God, the dynamic, uh, powerful, dynamite Spirit of God is working. I'll tell you how. We get on board with the mission of Christ to save the world. That's how the Spirit of God will show up at this church. Not by playing the same chorus for 30 minutes. We can do that. That's fine. We can do that. Missions. Get on mission and we'll see the Spirit of God work. Okay? Why am I so adamant about this? (laughs) Because... We are a consumer culture in the West in evangelicalism. We are. We see the Holy Spirit as being a tube that we need to squeeze. We see the Holy Spirit as being something there so that we can feel good on Sunday, so that we can get goosebumps and shivers up our spine. The Holy Spirit is the power of God to save, not something there for us to manipulate. Our call is to the world. It is to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. We are witnesses. We need to go be that. And I love verse nine. I'll just end the story here. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now put put yourself in these guys' shoes for a minute, okay? You thought Jesus was dead. It was devastating to you. Everything that you thought was going to happen didn't happen. Jesus was on a cross. He's in a grave. What are you going to do? And then all of a sudden, this crazy thing happens. Jesus rose from the dead. And you're like, hallelujah, he's back. Everything is going to be cool again. Jesus is here. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to rule and reign. The the disciples are thinking, we're going to be part of his cabinet. Everything's good from this point forward. Yay. And then he takes you up on the hill, and he floats away. (laughs) You're like, seriously? You just got back. You've only been here 40 days. Like, where are you going? What are you, what, where could you possibly have to go, Jesus? That's basically what happens here. <laughs> That's <is> my paraphrase. <laughs> While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men. Okay, I love this. So Jesus already told them what to do. What did he tell them to do? Wait till the spirit comes, Pentecost. Then what? Go. Very simple. Wait, then go. Wait, then go. Wait, then go. Maybe Jesus, if he had like a whiteboard, he could have drawn it for them. Wait, and then go. Okay, so Jesus, he doesn't float on the cloud, by the way. The glory of God enveloped him and he, he disappeared. Um, and then Jesus has to send angels down because they're like this. And they don't know, they just, they're like staring. They're like, what, where, did he, where did he go? Is he gonna, what, what, we'll just, we'll wait here, I guess. We'll, get, we'll turn on Fox News, we'll get our freeze-dried meals, we'll figure out who the Antichrist is, and we'll just wait. Awesome. And so Jesus is like, oh, these guys, I, I told them to get to work, right? So, so he sends two angels, and he said, <laughs> while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood behind them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the angels come up behind these guys when they're looking up and he goes, go, go do it. Go, stop standing around, waiting, trying to figure out when you're gonna be raptured. Go to work. Go spread the gospel. Go join the mission. Go do what Jesus had already said to do. Listen, we're not called to sit around and wait. We're called to be busy. We're called to be busy. F.B. Meyer said, the church which is not a missionary church will be a missing church when Jesus comes. Think about that. C.H. Spurgeon said, if there be any one point in which the Christian ought to keep its fervor at white hot heat, It is concerning missions. If there be anything about which we cannot tolerate lukewarmness, it is the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. We must be about the business of the kingdom globally. Amen? We are being sent. So, my second point, the second thing that I came home just laser focused on, and I think us as a team, we just came home feeling like this is what we're supposed to do, is number two, our church is needed and is being called into global work. We spent a lot of time talking to a lot of different pastors. We visited 12 different, at least 12 different churches sat with many different leaders in Albania and other countries, and we were just listening and we were just asking questions and we were just trying to understand, you know, what is the link here between the Western church, between Grants Pass Oregon and Philippi and Illyricum movement in Albania? What is needed? What do you need from us? What's helpful? What's not helpful? And here's what every single leader said. What we need is more people that want to stay and come and be invested long-term. Okay. Do they need financial funding? Of course. Is, are we as Americans, are we able to do that? Yes. Should we continue to do that? Yes. But not one of them said, we just need more people to write more checks. What they said is, we need people to care long-term. They, multiple times they said, please don't be those people that come over to this country, snap your Instagram pictures, and never come back. That happens a lot in missions. It does. So I think collectively, as we sat around the table with our stomach aches, eating food that was different, um, and, and had these late night conversations, they, they eat dinner at like 8 o'clock in Albania, so it's so funny, we just, were eating hero and pizza at 8 o'clock, and we we're talking about this, we're like, okay, whatever this looks like, it looks like a long-term relationship, because that's what these guys are longing for, that's what these guys need, they need long-term strategic partnerships and relationships. What we found was we found a country that is around 3 million people. That Listen to me, guys. A country that is around 3 million people that has less than 200 churches in the whole country. Less than 200 evangelical churches. We got to go to, it was kind of weird, got to go to this thing called Vush. It was like a, um, a conference for all of the pastors in Albania. Every single pastor in Albania was in a room, and it was about this size. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. The, the, the need for the gospel is huge. Islam is advancing in countries like this. Christianity needs to be advancing. Yeah, there's some big, dusty, old, gaudy Catholic churches over there, but they're nothing more than a museum. There's something for, for, for tourists to walk in and, 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 and look at. We need more gospel churches to be planted in Albania. We drove, we spent a day driving over to Kosovo. You guys remember Kosovo in the 90s? yeah. We drove to Kosovo. Kosovo is a similar size, a little smaller, maybe 2 million. Guess how many churches are in Kosovo? Less than 20. Less than 20 Protestant evangelical churches in a country of close to 2 million people. It's insane. We need more. We need more resources. We need more people to go. We need more churches to be planted. The need is there. And Albania is a strategic country in that it's open. It's wide open. In fact, it's so open that it's one of the number one places where drugs and money are trafficked and laundered through that country. But here's the cool thing: if God has, uh, you know, if God's going to do what I think God's going to do here, Albania is going to be a place where the gospel is trafficked through that country. See, it's a strategic place because things are easy to come in and things are easy to go out. So a lot of drugs and stuff come from South America through Albania and are trafficked through. But the same, the, the for the same reason. What Albania can do strategically is it can bring people from Muslim countries in, train them, and then send them out. So here's the exciting thing. Let me just get more specific, more narrow here. Uh, Illyricum Movement in Albania, which we went to see who we're partnering with, they are starting something called the International Biblical Training Center, or IBTC. And it's not just an idea. They've already bought the land. They already have the money raised for the first piece of the building. They're already bringing people in right now from Africa. And here's the cool thing. Here's what they're gonna do. Their goal is to bring in, pardon me if I got this wrong, Ryan, but I think 100 families, right? 100 families into this for a whole year and to give them training on how to plant churches, on how to teach the Bible, on how to minister, on how to school their kids, on how to get jobs from some of the hardest Middle Eastern uh, and Islamic countries in the world and send them out all over. So people from Iran are gonna be coming, people from um, some of these Muslim states in the north of Africa are gonna be coming, and getting the training and the equipping that they need for a whole year in our church is gonna to get to be part of that. So our hope and our desire is to begin sending teams over, maybe even annually, to to, to help in the training of these people uh, so that we can not only just plant churches in Albania, but that we can plant churches in all of these hard to reach Middle Eastern Islamic states all over the world. Wouldn't that be awesome? This is incredible. We actually got to see the plans, we got to see the land. There's, I think it's something like six families coming in from from, uh, Africa, um, I think as we speak or in the next few months that are gonna be on the ground training and beginning and being the first kind of wave of people. And so what's so cool about that is that we're not just thinking about what can God do in Albania, we're thinking about what can God do all over the world through this international biblical training center. And can we look at sending teams and sending people to go and help and assist in that work? What would a long-term relationship look like? So sweet Abby, Abby Martin, who we know, she's going to be living there for the next year and learning and seeing and learning the language. She's going to be a strategic person for us uh, so that if we can send teams, she can be there to kind of intercept and and help and, and lead them. There's a lot of really exciting things going on. So let me get a little bit more specific here. And I want to ask the question, how can we as Philippi have a church culture committed to global missions? How can we, as a church family, have a culture committed to global missions? Because otherwise, we're gonna get in our own little space, we're gonna get tunnel vision, we're gonna forget about what God's doing in the nations. How do we avoid that? Let me give you four things. Four things. Number one, you won't care about what you don't know about. Okay, I want you to hear that. You won't care about what you don't know about. It's just true. It's just true. You got a pipe under your house that's leaking and you don't know about it, you don't care about it. You don't care about it until you know about it. So what we need to do is we need to know about what God is doing in Albania. And I would say the, most, the easiest way to do that is uh, Ryan and Bree and a team from this church, every month they actually send about eight or 900 newsletters about the Illyrica movement in Albania uh, every month, they, 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 they show up to Ryan and Bree's house. Bree makes an awesome meal. They fold the letters, they pack them, they send them, they mail them out. Um, and you can get on that list to get that letter and start reading it. Get it in your inbox, get it in your mailbox. Start reading about all the different things that are happening in Albania. That's a good start. You can come help fold those letters and send those letters. Just talk to Pastor Ryan. Ryan, put your hand up. Uh, If you are interested in that, you can sign up over here on the info desk and say, I would like to receive that letter. You can also sign up to receive Abby's letter that she sends out every so often with her updates about how she's doing. So the first thing I would say, you won't know or you won't care about what you you don't know about. First thing I would say is just start Getting in the loop. Just start hearing what God's doing over there and your heart will begin to expand. Number two, you won't care for what you don't pray for. You won't won't care for what you don't pray for. I love John Mott. He said, the history of missions is a history of prayer. Everything vital to the success of the world's evangelization hinges on prayer. So I wanna invite you guys to begin praying for Albania. It's funny, you say Albania, people are like, where is that? I mean, it's a tiny little country on the other side of the Adriatic from Italy. It's just, it's northern Greece. It's actually, believe it or not, it's only like 50 to 100 miles from original Philippi in northern Greece, which is kind of cool. But, anyways, start praying for these people. Start praying for Pastor Eddie. He's the one that uh, leads the Illyricum movement over there. Start praying for some of these churches over there. Start praying for the church in Kosovo that's trying to reach people in a Muslim world where it's hard soil. Start praying for these guys. Number three, you won't delight in what you aren't invested in. You won't delight in what you aren't invested in. Randy Alcorn, he said this. He said, I've heard people say, I want more of a heart for missions. I always respond, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and in your church and in the poor and your heart will follow. The reality is if you wanna be invested in global missions, you need to be invested in global missions. If you want your heart to care about global missions, put your finances in global missions, okay? You can do that by supporting this church. You can do that directly to Illyricum. You can do that by supporting Abby. She has needs there um, that she can be met um, and we can point you in that direction. And then number four, Number four, you can't share what you don't possess. You can't share what you don't possess. The level to which we have obtained and experienced Christ is the level to which we will desire to see him manifested in the lives of others. That's what it means to be a witness. To care about the nations is to first have experienced Christ for yourself. You say, well, I just don't know how to share the gospel. I just, I'm not good at it. Are you good at sharing when you ate at a really good restaurant? Are you good at sharing the facts of your favorite football team or, or how you unlock the next level on whatever video game you're playing or, uh, or whatever it is? I mean, what, whatever it is that you've experienced and that you love and that you're passionate about, you talk about it. How do we become witnesses? We witness the risen Christ. And this is why John the Apostle in 1 John 1, 1.4, said 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, he said, that which is from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that is Jesus, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was in the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. Do you see what John is saying? He said, This isn't, this Jesus isn't just an idea. It's, he's a reality. We've handled him. Our hands have handled him. We've seen him. We've touched him. We've put our hands in his, the holes in his hands from his nails. John is saying, We are witnesses of Christ. So, how do we care more about God's global agenda? We get to know Christ better. We stoke our passions for Jesus. We fall more in love with Jesus. We spend more time with Jesus. And as we witness him, we will care more that we bring him to the nations. So in conclusion, I just wanna say God's kingdom program is expanding. Are we on board with it? And I have to say that some of the people in this church are some of the most generous, some of the most godly, some of the most mission-minded people I've ever had the privilege of being part of. And I wanna just encourage you to keep doing that. And I wanna thank you guys for how much you do care about the gospel and how much you do care about the ministry of what God is doing in the world. I just wanna encourage that. My purpose this morning is just to keep our eye on the ball and to remember that we need to be involved in God's global work in the ministry. And lastly, I'll say this. I believe that God is calling people in this room and in this church to three things. I believe God is calling everyone in this church to care and to pray and to support, okay? Everyone in this room. Secondly, I believe God is calling some people in this room to begin thinking and praying about short-term trips to Albania and maybe even other places to do missions. How many of how you many in here have done a short-term trip, a missions trip before? Okay, it's life-changing. It's life-changing. We wanna be a church that's sending trips regularly and we wanna see as many of you guys as possible. We're gonna gonna try to make it as financially realistic as possible by sort of subsidizing and offsetting costs for plane tickets and things. We wanna bring as many people as we can to begin to build relationships over there so that we are truly connected with these guys. So so the second thing would be, I think God is calling some people in this room to go temporarily. And the third thing is, and I really believe this, God is calling some people in this church into long-term missions. One of the things we heard over and over again is people are saying, we need people to come stay here. We need people to come stay. We need couples and young gals and young men and older men and older gals. We need need people to come and to stay or to come and do what Abby's doing and staying for a year. We need long-term people. And I believe in our midst, there are missionaries that are ready to be sent. And so I'm just gonna encourage you to reflect on Acts chapter one, to reflect on Matthew chapter 16, to realize that God is a God of the nations that he wants to send and he wants to send out of this church. Amen? There's so much more I could say about the trip and about what we experienced. Um, I'd love to just, yeah, in conversation, be able to share more of that. Pastor Ryan also can share experiences and things like that. But why don't you guys stand with me? We'll pray and we'll end in a couple songs. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are building your church on the confession of the gospel by the power of the spirit and that we are part of that because we are grafted in, abiding in the vine. Would I pray for Philippi Church right now? I pray that this would be um, a landmark Sunday for us, a moment where we begin to commit to putting our affection and putting our attention and putting our resources and putting our people into your kingdom, global kingdom agenda. God, give us a heart for Albania. Give us a heart for what you're doing. God, I pray that we would be a praying church. I pray that we would be a sending church, an invested church, Father. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for inviting us to be part of what you're doing, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name.